you ever felt like there was something in your life that you should be able to do, but you just couldn't do it? Uh, I was given by a friend of ours recently a bookshelf, <clears throat> Ikea style, all the parts, but no instructions. And I was like, yeah, no big deal, I got this. Uh, but when I was done, I had a standing bookshelf, but I also had three pieces of wood <laughs> left over, and I have no idea where they go on that bookshelf. And so technically I've got a bookshelf, but you should be careful where you sneeze in my house. I, I got lots of examples. I can't find anything. I've got eyes. I've got a brain. I should be able to find my wallet and my phone and the remote. And I just can't. My wife can. She can swoop in like a stinking eagle and snatch some object out of a pile, pile of junk, but I just can't seem to do it. Now, now, that's the light stuff. It gets a little bit heavier. There are other things in our lives where we feel like we should be able to do something and we just can't seem to do it, like keep our temper. Maybe you've had a bad day at work and you're like entire time home, you're just giving yourself a pep talk. Don't blow up on the kids. Don't blow up on the wife. Don't blow up on the kids. Don't blow up on the wife. Keep your temper. But how are you supposed to keep your temper when they're chewing so loud? Maybe it's not your temper, maybe it's telling the truth. Like you know you shouldn't lie and you, you tell yourself you're, you're gonna stop. It's like not even worth the lie, but you can't help it. Someone calls you on something. Why were you late? Why didn't this happen? And it just comes out because it turns out you care more what they think of you than you care about being honest. There are lots of things in our lives where, where we feel like we ought to be able to do something and we just can't seem to do it. There are silly examples like finding the remote. There are slightly heavier examples that lean into the frustration of our spouses or the minor conflicts we might have with our coworkers. And then there's the actual heavy stuff. There's the stuff that ruins our relationships. There's the stuff that we're deathly afraid that anyone would find out about. We want to stop. We know that we should, and we even suspect that we should have the strength and the discipline to stop, but we just can't seem to do it. And so you delete your internet search history again. You sniff your clothes as you're walking into the house because you're worried that they're going to smell it on you. Again, you imagine that conversation and how good it would feel to really tell them how you think they are feeding that bitterness and that hate in your heart again. Have you ever felt like there was something in your life that you should be able to do and you just can't seem to do it? It can be exhausting. It can feel oppressive. And it's only made worse by the suspicion that we ought to be able to stop. Have you ever been there before? Are you there right now? Because that's what we're going to talk about tonight, that kind of experience. Today we are going to talk about strongholds. We're going to talk about what they are, we're going to talk about how they're formed, and we're going to talk about how to 
break them. Now, I want to set the table a little bit before we go any deeper into this topic and just say a stronghold is a spiritual problem. Yes, there are emotional aspects to it. There can even be physical aspects to it. But fundamentally, at its core, it's a spiritual problem. A leader of the early church, his name was Paul, and he told fellow Christians, he said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. In other words, you might suspect that the main issues in your life were all financial, or physical, or relational, or even emotional, but we ought not dismiss the spiritual. Jesus himself taught that we have a spiritual adversary that is called Satan, and that he is not equal to Jesus, but he is opposed to Jesus, and he is opposed to us. So I'm just going to lay it out here right up front. Look, this conversation today might be outside of some of our comfort zones, But I have been praying and I am still praying in this moment that God would open the eyes of some of us because a conversation that starts about oppression, God wants it to end with freedom. The gentleman that I talked about earlier, whose name is Paul, he wasn't just a leader in the early church. He was largely responsible for the spread of Christianity in the ancient Near East. In fact, most of our, uh, the New Testament in our Bible, it's made up of letters that Paul wrote to churches he himself planted. The quote from earlier was a letter he wrote to a church in modern-day Turkey. And we also have two letters that he wrote to a church in Corinth, Greece. We call these letters 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul describes what a spiritual stronghold is, and he describes how to deal with them. Uh, this is found in 2 Corinthians verse 10, uh, excuse me, chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. I want to remind you that earlier Paul said to fellow believers, to, to Christians, he said, our real struggle, our real fight is not against flesh and blood. Well, here what Paul says is he says, hey, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Now, Paul is a genius. We just sometimes miss his genius because we're not up to date on our ancient history But Corinth was one of the large, influential city-states of ancient Greece. And so when Rome, the empire of Rome, they started to rise to power and set their eyes on conquering Greece, they decided to make an example of Corinth. They didn't just attack Corinth, they invaded the city. They started to tear down its walls and its fortresses. They took captive the citizens of Corinth and took them away from their homes Is this sounding familiar at all? Yeah, Paul is writing about something the Corinthians had experienced in their history. In fact, 100 years after that event happened, Julius Caesar, yes, that Julius Caesar, he repopulated the city of Corinth by giving land in the city to some of his veteran soldiers. 
And so when Paul was writing this to the people of Corinth, he was writing it to conquered Greeks and the descendants of Roman legionaries, two people that knew very well how good the Romans were at war. And he's saying followers of Jesus are every bit as effective at war. We tear down walls every bit as high as the walls that once stood around Corinth. We, we, we capture lies that are every bit as dangerous as a Greek warrior once was. See, he's saying, look, we are as effective as war, at war as the Romans ever were. We just, we just fight in a different realm against different enemies with different weapons. A spiritual stronghold is an area in our lives where we have believed a lie. And because we believe that lie, we have developed a pattern of destructive sin. You can know if you have a spiritual stronghold because it will be an area of your life where you have constant problems and never seem to have any victory. It will be a habitual area of sin and suffering and failure and hopelessness. And at the heart of every single stronghold is a lie. We can see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in the verses that we looked at. This is what Paul's talking about. He says we can demolish strongholds. How? Well, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is perfect. What, what, what God knows is true. He knows what's true about our world. He knows what's true about me. And he knows what's true about you. So if something sets itself up against the knowledge of God, it is by definition false. It's a lie. And you can see this really clearly in verse 5, this last verse, where Paul says, And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now the word there, thought, it seems kind of innocent on the surface until you realize that it's translated from a Greek word, noma. And how Paul uses noma in the rest of this letter to the Corinthians is anything but innocent. In chapter two, he talks about noma and it's, it's translated as schemes, specifically the schemes of Satan. In chapter four and chapter 11, it's translated as minds, minds that are blinded by Satan and led astray by Satan. What's my point? My point is, is that Paul is not talking about some kind of innocent, neutral idea or opinion. He is talking about a lie, a spiritual lie. After all, our adversary, Satan, he is the father of lies who deceives the whole world. Which means that Satan's primary strategy when it comes to attacking people, even Christians, his strategy is deception. It's deception because if you have put your trust in Jesus... That means that Jesus' work on the cross has broken the power of sin in your life. The adversary has no power or authority in your life. He is a defeated foe. So his strategy is to keep you from realizing that. That's why the core of it is deception. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you have been deceived by Satan... 
Your eternal destiny is not at stake, but your daily victory is. The heart of every stronghold is a lie. But how does that lie get to us? How does it get into our minds? How does it get into our hearts? Well, most strongholds start, they form in response to a painful experience. You may have never thought of this before, but it's natural that our minds interpret our experiences. That, that is natural for us. We like to give reasons to things. We like to take a what and apply a why. It's natural. I can give you an example. February 5th, 2017, the Atlanta Falcons were playing the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. They managed to lose after leading by 25 points. Now, that's a what. But any Falcon fan you talk to, I promise you, they have applied a why. They have interpreted that experience. Some of them, maybe they would say that just the Patriots were better that day. They're just better at football. But that's not the most common interpretation. The most common interpretation of a Falcon fan is that we're cursed. And it's not just the Falcons, it's every Georgia sport right now. It's all a joyless disaster except for the one bright spot, and that's the Savannah Bananas, and they must be protected at all costs. Let's pray. No, okay. Hey, hey I'll give you a what. Uh, your boyfriend just smiled at a pretty girl. That's a what. You're going to attach a Why? And how whatever why, whatever interpretation you provide, that's, that's going to make a big difference. Was he just being nice or was he flirting? Look, this is a natural thing. We all do this. We interpret our experiences. We look at what we experience and we attach reasons to it. We attach whys to what's. That happens in minor things. And it happens in major things too. You were abused as a child. That's a what? It's a horrible what. And you will attach a why to that. Why did that happen to you? Is it because you are the victim of someone who leveraged their power to take advantage of you? Or did it happen because you were too weak to stop it? In other words, are you the victim or are you at fault? I was sexually abused by someone in my neighborhood when I was in the second grade. He was several years older than me and I don't remember much from of that age, but I remember every experience vividly. I can tell you what he said. I can tell you what he did. I can tell you what he told me to do. I can tell you how he manipulated every situation to get the two of us alone. I was too young to really understand what was, <clears throat> what was happening but kids are intuitive. I knew it was very 
very wrong. And I knew what he told me. What he told me was this was our secret and that I should not tell anybody. And if I did, he would be mad and I would get in trouble. And then it stopped. Most reasonable explanation is that one of his siblings found out and put a stop to it. But I don't actually know that. This is what I know. What I know is that I was left with a wound. And then I was left to interpret it. My what is that I was abused. And I believe strongly that the adversary, my adversary, he added his deception to this moment. And I came away with a why, and the why that I attached to this wound was that the reason that it happened is because I was too weak to stop it. The reason it continued to happen is because I was too much of a coward to tell anybody. In other words, it was my fault. It's hard to describe the amount of pain. Uh, it's almost unimaginable, except too many of you can't imagine it because you lived it. What you know if you've lived that kind of pain is that the worst thing that you could experience after the pain itself is to relive the pain. And so we wall it off. Um, psychologists aptly name this a defense mechanism. Sounds kind of like a stronghold. Defense mechanism, it's like withdrawal, it's um, denial, uh, it's basically whatever you need to do to escape or avoid the pain. Me, it was lying. What I decided was is that I was going to hide this pain and this wound by just being perfect on the outside. Like model student, model, like an athlete. I was polite to my elders. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't cuss, I didn't sleep around, I served at church. You know what, I was so good at it that most of the time I had myself fooled, which is of course the point. But I invested in this wall. Every once in a while, though, it would show. It would, the darkness in me, my sin, would, would show, and it would come out in all sorts of ways. Uh, sometimes it was a cutting remark, like I really just chopped someone down at their knees. Other times it was gossip behind someone's back, and I would get caught. Sometimes it was my suppressed anger exploding on the people around me who deserved nothing like that from me. And when that happened, this was the sign. This was the thing that was interesting. When that happened, I didn't feel guilt. I didn't feel convicted. I felt fear. Fear that someone would figure out who I really was. That I was weak. That I was a coward that I was broken 
and tainted. And so I spent years and years and years of my life investing in this wall until, until I couldn't see the pain anymore. And I wore that wall like a mask. Now your wound, your pain, it, it might not be as dramatic as abuse or a divorce or a tragic death, but that doesn't make your pain any less real. And the experience that you had, your wound, you attached a why to the what. And if what you attach to that wound is, it was a lie, then you probably have a spiritual stronghold in your life. And it's why. It's why there's an area in your life where you habitually fail and suffer and have this hopelessness. It's because there's a lie attached to that wound. My pattern of failure, my pattern of sin, my destructive pattern was an addiction to pornography. I hated my addiction. There was no part of it that I enjoyed. I wanted to stop, I wanted to stop desperately, and I did everything I could think of to do so. I installed accountability software. I asked for advice. At one point in my life, I threw away every DVD that I owned that had so much as a kiss in it. I was desperate. And nothing worked. And it didn't work because I, I was trying to fix a symptom. It's like dealing with a skin rash when what you really have is cancer. So nothing worked. Nothing worked because the reason I was looking at pornography was because I hated myself. I felt shame every time I looked at pornography and part of me felt that that's exactly how I should feel. That I deserve to feel that way because after all, I'm weak, I'm a coward, I'm broken, and I'm tainted. I don't really understand myself. What I want to do, I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? I didn't really understand myself. I, I, had, I, I had no idea what was happening because at some point in this process, I, I actually became a follower of Jesus. And I submitted all other areas of my life to him. And in those areas, I experienced power and purpose and joy. And I didn't understand why. I didn't understand why there was this one area of my life that was so dark, so full of failure, so hopeless. But as I look back on it, I can see, I can see that Jesus in his kindness, he was trying to show me what was behind the wall. But I refused. I can remember that, that like I served consistently in church, consistently, but I avoided prayer like the plague because after all, that would be far too risky to get that intimate with God. 
I remember friends of mine who would show courageous vulnerability and the spirit inside me would be screaming, Marcus, you can do that too. You can do that. Look at how much acceptance and love they're receiving. You can have that too. Look behind that. I would refuse. In fact, I would stiff arm those friends. I would try to avoid them so that I could avoid having another experience where I felt tempted to look behind the wall. But Jesus The hound of heaven, he had my scent and he did not give up on me. And he has not given up on you either. Some of you can feel that. You have felt him soothing your fears during this very message. You have felt him nudging you at times, pointing at things in your own life. He has not given up on you. And today could be the day that you stop running. For me, it's 2007. 15 years. In case anyone's counting. 2007. 2007, it's not that I stopped running. I couldn't run anymore. I just couldn't do it. It's exhausting carrying shame all the time. So uh, I just became depressed. Couldn't function into my junior year of college, I looked up and realized I was a week away from failing five of my classes and losing all my scholarships, so I couldn't hide it anymore. I called home. My parents were there by the end of the day. I moved home and started seeing a Christian counselor. And Jesus, in his kindness to me, he gently, through counsel and prayer, helped me see behind the wall. And it was extraordinarily painful. Because to look at the lie, you have to look at the wound. But it was a kindness. Because freedom begins with discernment. And what I mean by that is I mean God being kind enough to you to show you what you want to see the least to show you the wound, to show you the lie, to show you the sin that you need to confess and repent of, to show you the people that you need to forgive. None of that is fun. All of that hurts. But it is necessary for freedom, which is worth it. And then, after you see the wound, the next step is to bring spiritual weapons to bear, to attack that lie with truth, with God's word, to to talk to spiritual counselors, to pastors, to to maybe a Christian counselor, to work with your life group, to, to work with your group in student ministries, to work with other followers of Jesus that you trust, and help, let them help you find the scripture, the word of God that contradicts the lie that you've believed and you just call in the airstrike. Danger, close. You bombard this thing and brick by brick by brick, it will be pulled down until you can take that lie captive and make it obedient to Christ. Oh man, I have prayed over this message in a way that I don't think I have ever prayed over a message before. I believe, I genuinely believe that there are people both in this room where I am today at the other campuses of our church 
in whatever room where you're joining us online, I, I believe that God, that God wants to bring freedom. That these strongholds are not his will for any of us. And he wants us to be free because he loves us. It's that simple. And so you may not have walked in today with a name for what you have in your life, but you know what it is now and you want to be free. What is your next step? Your next step is to pray. And I don't mean to just like talk. I mean to plead and beg God to give you discernment, to show you what you wanna look at least. You can use Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 as your guide. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray it again and again and again. And when you feel distracted or you feel discouraged, you pray it again out loud, you pray it. And you watch where God wants to guide your thoughts in your heart. I look where you least want to follow God to the wound because he'll show it to you. And man, I, I want you to hear this from me. Maybe some of you right now, you feel this desire to be free, but you feel totally unequipped to do the spiritual work involved. Hear this from me, please. No strategic prayer is the solution to this. The solution to this is the name and the authority of Jesus. And the less prepared you feel for this, the more glory he will get by changing your life. You don't need to walk into this going, I need like to, to really get right before I can. No, no, no. Be raw. Be unfiltered. Just be desperate. Pray fervently as if you need God because you do, you do. And God will honor that. Ask for help, of course ask for help. You can grab any stinking person at any of our campus with a name tag on. They are required to help you. Look, you can ask for help. At some point, you can't avoid asking for help in this situation, but, but you can run to the throne of God. He will honor that. And when he honors that, when he shows you what you least want to see, when the pain of it hits you, thank him. Thank him for his severe mercy because that pain is the start of your breakthrough and then what do you do? You come back and you revisit this sermon and the sermon that we taught last week. Look it up on YouTube. I'm saying like, once you have that discernment, go come back to this and be reminded of the fact the next step is to bombard those walls with scripture, to say it out loud, to memorize it, to say it like you believe it until you do and until those walls crumble and you find the abundant life that Jesus came to give you. Have you ever felt that there's something in your life that you should be able to do and you just can't do it? I don't even really understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate 
oh, what a miserable person I am. Who, who can free me from this life dominated by sin and death? You are not the answer. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look, the, the heart of our faith is that there was a spiritual problem that we could not solve on our own. Our sins separated us from a holy God. And so Jesus did what we could not do. He came and lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death, taking our spiritual debt upon himself and giving us his perfection in return. Look, Jesus was not just a teacher of how to live a good life. He wasn't a guide into moral principles. No, no, no. He is the way. He is the truth. He is your life. And none of us could have gotten to the Father apart from him. And none of us can take down these strongholds apart from him either. So seek him. Just seek him. He will do for you what you cannot do on your own. And man, you need to know that Satan is not going to give up that ground easily because right now he has you discouraged. He has you in pain. He has you bound. And he knows that if you get free, you will be dangerous. After all, man, no one sings like the previously voiceless. No one runs like the previously hobbled. No one lives like the previously dead. Father, I remember the words of your son. He said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God, you take pleasure in giving us good things. You, you don't want to keep anything from us, and it hurts you to see us bound and restricted from the life that you sent your Son to provide. So God... Open eyes. Open our eyes to the spiritual reality of our lives. Right now, there, there are people who need to realize that the spiritual reality is that they're separated from you and they need Jesus to close that gap. And there are even followers of Jesus right now that have already understood that and yet they are living in daily defeat instead of victory because they are bound by the lies that they believe. God, open our eyes. Show us what we least want to see because that mercy, as painful as it is, is the beginning of freedom, freedom that can be found in you and you alone. So open our eyes and help us. Do it, Father. Do it now. Do it as we sing. May you continue to work. We ask it in Christ's name.